This was fought out. But in fighting that out, they nailed down the truth of God's Word and passed it all the way down to us all these years later. You know how separated we are from these people? They show up here, they couldn't even understand us. The English language wasn't even around back then. It's like, what is it, like another thousand years? That's how separated we are. But that's how God has guarded His truth all the way from back then to today. So we as a church, again, we are at the cutting edge of the first century. We're all the way back there, and this is all we're offering you, old stuff. But it's true. This is the truth of God's Word. Welcome to the Followers of the Way podcast for March 4th, 2018. Today, Brother Omar brings us part five of his message called Statement of Faith, Doctrine of God. Brother Omar breaks down the doctrine of the Trinity. He teaches us the history on how the Bible was written and how we are able to benefit from it today. He teaches us how the early church teachings are still relevant till this day because of how God guarded his word. Now he starts reading from the book of Acts. So grab your Bibles and follow along with us as we explore God's word here on Followers of the Way. We are in our fifth sermon on the doctrine of God. I had intended to make like four sermons per statement, but I guess I'm doing the bolden thing where I'm doing 15 sermons. Last time, last time, I actually get to say last week. Last week, we spoke about the issue of the incarnation of Jesus. Uh, why is that important for us to believe? The Christ or the second person of the Trinity became flesh and dwelt among us. We talked about the two natures of Christ, how He is fully God, He is fully man, and why it's important for us as Christians to believe that. Now, as a reminder, the reason why we're doing this, right, the reason why we have a statement of faith as a church, is because throughout history, Christians have decided to put down brief statements or summaries of their beliefs, of what is it that they believe. And the reason that we do that is because we have to define what we believe. We're Christians, therefore we believe in certain things. And we have to define them, otherwise we pretty much don't believe in anything. It's just all over the place. So, furthermore, if we're going to have a, a statement of faith or a creed, as some people call it, if, if you go to a church and you don't know what they believe, and you don't know where they stand, then you, you, again, you just, you're all over the place. Okay. So a statement of faith basically creates a, an accountability, so to speak, right? This is what we believe. This is the fence that we have put up, and anything outside of this fence is outside of the Christian faith. So we must define what we believe, otherwise we don't believe in anything. We also want to make sure, this is the important part, that we are following a historic Christian faith. That our statement of faith is not something that we just imagined or something that we've discovered new in the Bible, but we're also following in the footsteps of other people that came before us. That's very important, right? We're not smarter than anybody else. We don't have any special revelation. We need to understand that we stand in the traditions of a historic Christian faith. Now, that doesn't mean that tradition trumps the Bible, all right? We believe that the Bible is our ultimate authority, it's our final authority. But we also believe that God has preserved His truth in His church. Amen. And the 
truths that we hold to are stuff that has been handed down throughout the years. So we want to make sure that, yes, we hold the Bible to be a final authority, but also that we're standing in line with a tradition that has been passed down. We're not just, you know, old who didn't had a dream or a vision and decided to start followers of the way, right? We're following in the footsteps of different people. So that's very important for us to understand. We have not discovered some crazy new thing, uh, but we are faithful to the scripture and to those who came before us. We are at the cutting edge of the first century. There you have it. So we as a church have to be cemented in the truth of the Bible and historic Christianity. So that's why we, we have a statement of faith that is aligned with the truth of the scriptures and also with the traditions that have been handed down to us. So that being said, in the Bible, if you read the Bible, if you read the book of Acts, if you read the epistles, you're going to notice that towards the end of the ministry of the apostles, the apostles kind of realize our mission here is coming to an end. We're about to go. They began giving us some warnings and exhortations. And if you read, for example, in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, the Apostle Paul goes down to Ephesus to meet with the elders of the church in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was the place where the Apostle Paul was for the longest time. He actually stayed there for three years. He worked there, he had a regular job, and he ministered in Ephesus for three years. So Paul realized, I'm being called by God to go to Jerusalem, and probably you will never see me again. So I'm going to give you some exhortations, and I'm going to give you to the elders at Ephesus my final message. And this is what he says, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. He says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. If you notice, very interesting, he says, for among your own selves, so this is not going to be people who are coming out from the outside. These are not going to be people who are from another religion. These are going to be people that are coming out from your own churches. He says, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them, to divide the church, to, to mark a division. Now, if you look in, in, the, in the Greek language, the word for division is heresy, where heresy means division. When somebody has a heretical teaching, it's somebody that is deviating from the line. So he's causing a division, and he's taking people with him. So heresy, or twisted Doctrines come from within the church. These are people who are Christian people, at least in name. These are wolves in sheep's clothing that Jesus said. So Paul warns, this is the last thing I'm going to tell you all, church in Ephesus. I'm going to leave. I'm going to Jerusalem. You will never see me again. And all I, I don't know what's going to happen, but all I know is that it's not going to be good. That's all I know. All I know is that the Spirit is telling me everywhere I'm going is going to be persecutions. I'm going to be arrested. This is done. But before I leave, I want to give you my last message, which is, from among you, men will come speaking twisted things. In 2 Peter, this is the Apostle Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, again, the Apostle Peter is writing his last letter. He says this, chapter 2, verse 1, But false prophets 
also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And notice the word secretly. In other words, they're secretly bringing in heresies. They're among you. They're teaching false things, but you could barely even notice them. They're secretly, they're crafty in how they speak. Jude, my good friend Jude, verse 17, there's only one chapter in Jude. The book of Jude is the book right before the book of Revelation. So if you're reading through the Bible, you get Jude and then you get Revelation. That's the end. All right. So right before Revelation, you get this other message. He says, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own godly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. It is these who cause divisions. Every single one of these people the apostles are talking about are causing divisions. They're leading people stray. They're taking them into a path that is not the path of the truth. Now, these, all of these stuff that I just read to you are generic statements about false doctrine and false teachings, okay? And the warnings of, of the New Testament writers is to be vigilant, to watch out, all right? To, to pay attention to these things. Now, in 1 John chapter 4, you get the same thing. But John is a little bit more specific, right? So far we're getting generical statements about false doctrine. John decides, I'm going to zoom in, I'm going to zero in, I'm going to be a little bit more specific. So 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into this world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God. You have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not of God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. I'm used to the King James. He that heareth us. The word test, he says test the spirits, right? The word test in Greek means to analyze, to verify something to see whether or not it's genuine. The implication here is that the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God is not the only spirit going around. There are other spirits. The Apostle John calls the church, the believers, to test the spirits to determine whether or not it is from God. Now, in doing that, he lays down a very, very, very important thing that you have to know about a spirit that comes from God is that a true Godly spirit has a proper understanding of Jesus Christ. Amen. Any spirit that does not confess a Christ that is the genuine Jesus Christ of the Bible cannot be from God. Amen. That's what he's saying. So this is from the 
NET Bible First Edition Notes. Here's what it says. I'm going to read you the little commentary. He says, Test the spirits. In the second half of the present verse, the author mentions false prophets who have gone out into the world. It appears highly probable that this concept of testing the spirit is drawn from the Old Testament concept of testing a prophet to see whether he is a false prophet or a true one. The procedure for testing a prophet is found in Deuteronomy chapter 13 and chapter 18. An Old Testament prophet was to be tested on the basis whether or not his predictive prophecy came true. So this is how it happened. You're in Israel. Some guy comes along. Hey, my name is, uh, I don't know, Yo-Yo the prophet. That's me, okay? I'm a prophet. I went to prophet school, whatever. So people would be like, people would be like, okay, um, all right, what you got? It's like, well, you know, tomorrow the building's going to fall down. It's going to kill two people. So everybody's like, okay, fine. So 145 next day, everybody gather around. The building doesn't fall and kill anybody. Okay, we know that you're not a true prophet. You will get stoned. All right, so test number one, you better make sure if you're Yo-Yo the prophet, that when you go out and say something, it needs to pan out. That's number one, okay? The other test was whether or not he advocated idolatry, right? So they say, you know, Yo-Yo the prophet comes back out and he says that building's gonna fall at two o'clock, it's gonna kill two people. Two o'clock comes around, the building falls and it kills two people. Okay, it's pretty good, except for the two people that died. But that's pretty good. Uh, the second test would be if he said, glory to Moloch, okay, you're a false prophet. Even though whatever you said came about, if you're advocating for some other god, you're a false prophet, we still get to stone you. So you have to pass these two categories, okay? So, here's back to the commentary. He says, in the latter case... The people of Israel are warned that even if the prophet should perform an authenticating sign or wonder, his truth or falsity is still to be judged on the basis of his claim, that is, whether or not he advocates idolatry. So here in 1 John, the idea of testing the spirits comes closer to the second Old Testament example of testing the prophets. According to 1 John, the spirits are to be tested on the basis of their Christological confession. The person motivated by the Spirit of God will confess Jesus as the Christ who has come in the flesh, while the person motivated by the Spirit of deceit will not confess Jesus and is therefore not from God. What John seems to be doing is that he's advocating for the second test. We as Christians, when we test a spirit, the most important thing is, what is it that you understand about who Jesus is? And on the basis of that, we don't get to stone people, but we get to kick them outside of the church, meaning they're excommunicated from the Christian faith. They're no longer Christians. They're no longer part of this historic church tradition that has been carried out. Okay, So the apostles were true prophets, and they spent the last years of their ministry telling us false prophets are coming, false teachers are coming from among yourselves. Well, because the apostles were true prophets, their prophecies actually came true, okay? Almost immediately after the apostles died, and even when some of them were alive, the doctrine of Jesus began to be attacked. Now, we know that Jesus himself was attacked and questioned when he was alive, but after the apostles died and the early church fathers are left over, you know, they're, they're, they're left with the doctrines that they received from the apostles, 
they began this nonstop attack upon the Christian faith. Okay? So the early church fathers rose up to the occasion and began defending the truth of the Word of God up and against the heresies of their times. Now I want to explain to you exactly what I mean by the early church fathers. So you have the apostles, the APs, right there, and then you got this thing called Nicaea. I will explain that in a minute. All right. The apostles die. This is 325 AD. Okay. This period here, the leaders that rose up during that period were known as the early church fathers. Or some people call them the anti-Nicene fathers. I'm going to explain what that means in a minute. Okay. So during that period, you see horrific persecution. Probably the worst that the world has ever seen. Now, I know today there's the Muslim world is really rough, and places in China are really rough, but the early church, the persecution was horrendous, okay? If you were a Christian, you were subject to all sorts of punishment, death, torture, you were thrown into the lions, your family, your children were taken, and you were told, you know, deny Jesus, I will kill your children in front of your face. All of those things were happening during that time. It was horrific persecution. On top of that, the Christian faith is being attacked constantly by false teachers, by Gnostics, etc. So, during this period, we have a church that was left over by the apostles, facing horrible persecution, yet at the same time, they're defending the Christian faith. Okay. Now, 300 years go by, and basically from the moment that Christianity came into the world, if you lived anywhere during that period, you didn't know any better other than persecution. You thought that this is the way things are. We're Christians. We're here. The apostles told us we're here to suffer and die and be punished and be beaten or whatever. But then something incredible and amazing happened. All right? So 313, here's some history. The Roman Empire is out of control and is divided amongst four emperors. Right? So you got the Roman Empire is this thing. It looks just like this, just like it, beautiful, right? This part is the west, obviously, right? And then you got the east. This is where you get Western civilization. Have you ever heard of that? Western civilization, right? Occidente, if you speak Spanish. This comes from here, the Roman Empire. Anything this side to Europe, Western civilization, and anything this side, Eastern civilization. So, Roman Empire is divided into... And then this side has two emperors. This side has two emperors. This is called the Tetrarchy, right? You got four emperors, right? So these two emperors, um, here and here, there is a man by the name of Flavius Constantinus, also a.k.a. Constantine the Great, a.k.a. Constantine the First, a.k.a. I don't know, Notorious C-O-N, whatever. Um, <laughs> Constantine was born in the eastern part of the empire, which was Greek. They spoke Greek, right? They spoke Greek over here. This side, they spoke Latin, right? Our people right there. They spoke Latin, right? He was born over here. His mom was a woman named St. Helena, who was a Christian, and she decided to give him a Greek education, but also a Latin education, and make him familiar with the Western part of the empire also. So this guy was perfect. He knew this. He knew this. He was basically involved in the whole culture of the Roman Empire. 
So Constantine comes up with this awesome idea. He says to himself, you know, I think I could take care of this by myself. I'm just going to go over and take over this whole part, and this part should have an emperor. The guy over here named Licinius thought, hey, I have a great idea. I can take over the whole eastern part of the empire, right? And I'll just rule the eastern part of the empire. No big deal. So Constantine decides that he's going to invade Rome. He's over there up in Britain or whatever, so he's going to come down, he's going to invade Rome. On his way to Rome, he gets to what is known as the Malvian Bridge to cross into Rome, and he's at a disadvantage. His troops are tired. Maximius was the emperor here. He was in Rome. He's got his troops. He's, been, you know, he's got more number of troops, so Constantine is being outnumbered, number one. Number two, his troops are tired. He's at a disadvantage. He ain't winning this thing. Not winning. So that night, he goes to sleep, and according to the story, while he's sleeping, Constantine has a vision. He has a dream. And in this dream, he's looking up into the sky, and he sees the Christian God, Jesus. Now, I don't know whether or not this story is true or not. This is the story that has been told, okay? He sees the Christian God, Jesus. He has a banner with a cross, and he says to him, and tutu nika, which means, by this you will conquer. By this you will conquer. So Constantine wakes up from the dream. He tells his soldiers, make me a banner with a, with a thing, with a, with a cross. Little did you know, Constantine, outnumbered, troops tired, totally at a disadvantage, wins the battle. He defeats the emperor of Rome and becomes the sole emperor of the Western Roman Empire. Unbelievable. Nobody could believe it. Constantine says to himself, this guy, Jesus, the Christian God, helped me conquer the Western Roman Empire. So, this guy here, Licinius, wins and he becomes the Eastern Emperor, right? So you got from four, you're down to two. These two guys meet together and they come up with something called the Edict of Milan, where the Christian faith for the first time ever in history, was legalized, was made official. So if the week before you were a Christian in Rome, you were running around, you were being chased, you were being tortured, a week later you were walking around the streets saying to people, hey, I'm a Christian, how are you? Nobody could touch you. Unbelievable. Unexpected, out of nowhere, some heathen dude named Constantine decides to make Christianity an accepted tolerated faith in the Roman Empire. Okay? So the Edict of Milan, 312 AD, says this, when we, Constantine and Licinius, emperors, had an interview at Milan and conferred together with respect the good and security of our commonwealth, it seemed to us that amongst those things that are profitable to mankind in general, the reverence paid to the divinity merited our first and chief attention, that it was proper that the Christians and all others should have the liberty to follow that mode of religion which to each of them appear best, so that that God, who is seated in heaven, might be benign and propitious to us and to everyone under our government. Christianity is made legalized and is an official religion in the Roman Empire for the first time. Things are getting good. Right? Here's what happens. When you're being persecuted, when you have to fight, right, you tend to be, you have muscle, 
right? You get lean, right? You're fighting, you're exercising every day, you're defending the faith. When you move into good times, eh, things don't seem to go like that. You get comfortable, you lay back. We can now build churches. Constantine, whether or not Constantine was a Christian is argued back and forth by people, okay? But one thing is for sure, the Constantine not only made Christianity legal, but he promoted it and defended it. And he gave special favors to Christians that he didn't give to other people, right? So there's a pagan temple there. Uh, I'm going to give it to you, Christians. Just take the pagans out of there and throw them outside. And here, you can have that thing there. You build a church, right? So that's where church buildings and cathedrals started coming from. So Constantine did that. Now, when things are comfortable, like I said, when things are good, we begin to see that it was easy now, it was the perfect environment for false teaching to come in. Very, very, very comfortable. So from that time, there arose a man. This is not the first heresy in the church, but this is the most important heresy okay, of the early church. There was a man by the name of Arius. Okay? Arius was from Libya, which is North Africa. And he studied under St. Lucian and became the presbyter of Alexandria. He studied under a man named St. Lucian. Arius is very educated, very intelligent, very smart. And he's a bishop. Okay? Um, he was not also very intelligent, but he was also very eloquent. He was a good speaker. He had good rhetoric. He could preach a good sermon. He also did something that the other heretics didn't do before. He used the Bible. He used scripture all the time. Every time he would teach his, his doctrines, he would quote from Scripture. Now, you're living in a time where the Bible is not very readily available. Nobody's walking around with this thing, you know, checking or anything. So you were dependent upon the bishops and the people who actually spoke, the pastors and the bishops and the preachers, to hear God's Word. Well, this guy named Arius is going around preaching. So, the controversy arises in Alexandria, Egypt, because he goes to Alexandria, he becomes a presbyter, which is like an elder, and he has a bishop above him called Alexander. Alexander of Alexandria. That's the best name ever. Alexander of Alexandria. All right. So Alexander, Bishop Alexander, goes up and he preaches a sermon. And the sermon, he, he preaches about Jesus and how Jesus and, and the Father and the Son and the Father are the same, and the Son is like the Father, and all this stuff, you know, co-equal, co-eternal, like the stuff that we talk about. Arius protests. He has a problem with that. Arius says, if the Father begat the Son, he that was begotten had a beginning of existence. And from this is evident that there was a time when the Son was not. It therefore necessarily follows, you hear, you hear how he uses logic? It therefore necessarily follows that the son had his substance from nothing. What is he saying? Very simple. If the father begat the son, there must have been a time in the history of our universe where the son did not exist. So this is what he taught. God was by himself. He's one person. So he's in eternity past, doing whatever. One day, he decides to make a being called the Son. At which point, this guy becomes father, obviously, because you cannot be a father unless you had a son, right? So 
God the Father begat Jesus Christ as the Son, and at that point the Son gained existence. He is the first of creation. That's why he taught. All right? Now, logically speaking, he says, if this is true, then the Son cannot have the same nature than the Father. Because he who creates cannot duplicate. He who creates, creates at a lesser substance. Okay? So, Alexander goes crazy. He says, you are crazy. You're teaching false doctrine. This is not what we've heard from those who came from us. Therefore, he kicks him out of the church. Just back then, back then they were a little bit more serious <laughs> than we are today. So they kicked him out of the church. He kicks him out. He excommunicates him. But Arius goes around and he begins preaching this from the Bible, quoting from the scriptures. Obviously misinterpreting, but quoting. And Arianism, as it came to be called, became the rival to Orthodox Trinitarian Christian faith. In fact, it was said that the Roman Empire was divided almost 50-50 between these two things, Christianity and Arianism. Now, around the same time that this is happening, see, this is all mixed together. This is happening, but there's also stuff happening in the world. Constantine and Licinius are now the two emperors. Constantine has this other great idea. This, these guys are always thinking. He said to himself, you know, I'm thinking, maybe Rome should have one emperor. Just one guy. And I think that should be me. I think I, I could do this. So there's a civil war between the East and the West, between Constantine and Licinius. Constantine is a really great politician, very great politician. And he, see, Licinius was a pagan emperor. And while he tolerated the Christian, he wasn't really too fond of the Christians, right? He didn't care much about them, right? In fact, he confiscated some property from the Christians or whatever. So obviously, our good man Constantine decided to turn that into propaganda. And he rallied up the Christians behind him. So I'm going to go out there with the banner, you know, in the name of Jesus Christ, I'm going to conquer, you know, one emperor, one empire, one faith, one God, all that stuff. So he goes over here, conquers the East, and becomes the sole one emperor of Rome. We're back to one emperor, right? So that's happening. Boom. Here's the problem. If you want one emperor, one empire, right, one government, you cannot have a war between Christians and Arians. So Constantine wants these things settled. He doesn't want issues. Now, whether or not Constantine actually cared, we don't know. He probably didn't. But he wants this whole issue settled. He wants it all settled down. You know, you guys argue amongst themselves, come up with a decision, and then we will stamp that as, you know, whatever, as the truth. Now, during this time period that Arius is preaching, and he's promoting his religion or his, his teachings, there's many people who are being led astray. Many people are who don't know any better, who are Christians, are listening to Arius preach, and they're amening everything he says, etc. And the church, at this point in time, didn't have the language to explain the truth of the Word of God. 
See, because we need language, we need concepts to explain these things. So all the stuff that we've talked about, the Trinity, you hear people say the Trinity is not in the Bible. We've read the Bible before, we know that it's not in there. Hypostatic union, all these concepts, the early church drills down into the Word of God and begin to use these concepts to explain the truth of the Word of God. This was necessary because without that, we wouldn't have what we have today. They gave us that. They gave us the doctrine of the Trinity, the two natures of Christ. All these things that we see in the Bible need to be drawn out and explained in concepts and language. They did that, and it was unbelievable, especially when you realize there was no Google back then. There was no PC. It was all reading and writing. There was no Google. You couldn't go on there. No, you have to read and write, okay? So, what happens? Constantine, um, worried about division, wants to settle this issue, and he calls a council. Let's all get together in a council. This council is going to be in a town called Nicaea. So, he takes them to the Nicaea World Disney Resort, whatever, and they go there for a while, and they need to hatch out argue it out, and come up with a decision. So, this debate gets heated, gets out of control, okay? In fact, there was a guy, according to the story, there was a guy named Saint Nick, also, a.k.a. Saint Nicholas, a.k.a. Santa Claus, who punched Arius in the face, okay? Yes, kids, Santa Claus was real, and he wasn't jolly. He was a mean guy. No, he, the debate got heated, supposedly, and he punched Arius in the face. But anyways, so they go back and forth. They go back and forth during this debate. Now, the Trinitarians, as they begin to be called, focus on Isaiah chapter 9. Okay? And Isaiah chapter 9, if you go there, it's because they begin to battle Scripture with Scripture. Remember, Arius used the Bible. Remember, Ariel was, Arius was a bishop. He was from the church. He knew the lingo that the church was using. He could use the lingo. He could use the language that the church was using, but he gave it different meanings. He will give it a different nuance. Remember what Peter says, secretly, craftily, okay? So, in Isaiah chapter 9, the church focused on the child that was given to us. Right? Isaiah chapter 9, it says that a son, a child is born and a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called what? Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You got two things there. Wonderful, okay, fine. Counselor, okay, fine. But Mighty God and Everlasting Father. So this child is mighty God, and he's also everlasting Father. In other words, he doesn't have a beginning somewhere. He is an everlasting Father. So the Bible gives to the Son of God attributes that it gives to the Father also. So they're arguing this. And in John chapter, John chapter 20, actually, here's another one. This, I love this one. The Trinitarians began to argue 
that the, in the Bible, the Son is worshipped. Chapter 20, verse 28, famous passage. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put your hand and place it at my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, saying, My Lord, my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus did not condemn Thomas, say, you idolater. No, he says, now you believe. Blessed are those who believe and they don't even see me. I had to come out here and walk into the house and show you for you to believe. Okay? So Jesus is worshipped in the Bible. And only God can worship. So the Trinitarians argue that you cannot worship a created being. We don't worship the angels. We don't worship the creatures in heaven. Right? The Bible talks about the four creatures or whatever. We don't worship those. We can only worship one God, which is the living God who lives in heaven forever. And Jesus accepted worship. No problem. Also, in the book of Revelation, I could read the whole book of Revelation, but Revelation chapter 5, it says this, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain by your blood, you ransomed people for God in every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that was in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So Jesus Christ, the Son, is exalted and the hosts of heaven fall down and they worship Him. And all of earth falls down and worship Him. Amen. Which can only Amen. be righteous if this Jesus is God. Amen. Same nature, equal with Him, co-eternal God. The only thing that's possible. So the church began to use Scripture and reason to counteract Arius. So after this whole thing is over, right? At the Council of Nicaea, the issue is settled. There was a vote, obviously, and the truth of the Word of God won out. Now, you're going to hear people tell you, especially those who are detractors of the Trinity, that there was a conspiracy that happened at Nicaea where the courageous prophet Arius was shut down by the church because they wanted to impose some hierarchical stuff and they mix it in with the political aspect, right? Because Constantine wanted one religion. The truth is, there was a second argument that the church made. It was not only that we see from Scripture that Jesus Christ is equal with the Father and He is God, but they prove that this is what has been handed down to us for the past 300 years. If you go back to Tertullian who lived 
way before this. If you go back to, you know, the, the Irenaeus and all these early church fathers, they point out this is what they taught us. This is new. It sounds alike, but it hasn't been handed down. So not only are our doctrine biblical, I can show you, I mean, we don't have Google, but we got the whole thing. I can show you the writings of our fathers and what they handed out to us. And what we're defending here is what was being given to us. So not only can we prove it in Scripture, we can actually show you that this is the argument that our fathers made. Now, the Catholic Church uses that to teach that tradition and the Scripture are equal. It's not equal. That's not what they were arguing. They were arguing from the Scriptures, but then they said, not only is this from the Scriptures, but this has, been, this has been with the church since the beginning. This is what we were taught. This is the apostle gave it to our fathers. The Father handed that to us. This is the truth of the Word of God. So at Nicaea, we ended up with something called the Nicene Creed, which is the official statement of the church. And I'm going to read it to you in Greek. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> it goes like this. I'm going to read you the first part. We believe in one God. The Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. All that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, and through him all things were made. For us... And for our salvation, he came down from heaven, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. I love how specific they are. They had to be specific. We're going to use as much specific language as we can throw into this thing. He is the only Son of God, eternally begotten. He's eternal. Of the Father, God from God, light from light. True God, in case you didn't get it the first time, true God from true God, begotten, not made, okay? Begotten means he's the same generation, the same nature as the Father. Of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. 325 A.D., I read you a description of what I believe today in 2018. I, I affirm every single one of these words completely. This was fought out tooth and nail and physically, if you believe Santa Claus. Um, okay, this was fought out. But in fighting that out, they, they nailed down the truth of God's word and passed it all the way down to us all these years later. You know how separated we are from these people? They show up here, they couldn't even understand us. The English language wasn't even around back then. It's like, what is it, like another thousand years? That's how separated we are. But that's how God has guarded His truth all the way from back then to today. So we as a church, again, we are at the cutting edge of the first century. We're all the way back there, and this is all we're offering you, old stuff. But it's true. This is the truth of God's Word. Now, I don't have the time, don't have the time, to tell you more about the modern iteration of 
this teaching. This is still around, okay? This is still around. This was resurrected in the 1800s. You know them today as the Jehovah's Witnesses. They teach this. Unlike the early church, we didn't stamp them out. <laughs> There's a bit of a difference between an American Christian and we're a different breed. But the truth of God's word has been preserved all the way down to us today. And I'm glad that they were willing to fight it out. They were willing to be unpopular. They were willing to, people say, listen, you're wasting, what's the big deal? And they love Jesus too. They love Jesus. So what's the big deal? Arguing over these little nuances. It's God's word and it's true. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And I thank you, Lord, for all of those who came before us, Lord, that were willing to fight out for your truth, Lord, defend it, keep it and pass it on to us, all the way down to us, Lord. I thank you, Lord. We pray that you may give us um, the same passion that they have, Lord, and the same willingness to stand for your truth as they did, Lord. Even facing political pressure, if it came to that, Lord, they were willing to stand out for your truth. We pray, Lord, that you may help us as a church to carry on your word and to preach it, Lord, and to um, pass it down to later generations. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Followers of the Way podcast. If you like more information about Followers of the Way Church, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash FOTW Church. Again, that's www.facebook.com forward slash FOTW Church. We trust and hope that you've enjoyed hearing God's word and how to apply it to our lives. Our podcast is updated weekly, so remember to follow us here at Followers of the Way.